1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
0: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey,
0: guys. Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
1: Hey, it's Dr. Ward. I'm the traveler. I went to the bathroom, my second bathroom today.
2: (laughs) Are you going to make it as far as the sofa? Maybe if
1: the airline tickets were on sale.
2: Oh,
0: be nice, be nice. Dr. Ward is sick with COVID. Well, probably not sick anymore, but quarantining yourself until you get better, I'm guessing. I have
1: recovered.
2: Thank you. (laughs) I'm glad you recovered, but here I was getting ready this week to make the episode a story time for you about the days of old. Yay, days of yore.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm guessing, Josh, since it's, you know, our podcast that, you know, we'll be focusing on, like, the Industrial Revolution or you know maybe you know going through the great depression
1: or a time free of disease just cleanliness and everyone was doing fine
0: yeah it's uh, you know maybe like uh i don't know old persian society you know you like some of those or
2: well no? i i took a browse through all the settings on the way back machine and i figured i'd take us to an episode devoted to the Victorian era. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) No, 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 no. You guys, it'll be fun. From 20th June, 1837 until 22 January 1901. So that's a big period. Over 70 different specialty hospitals were founded between 1800 and 1860. And when I say specialty, I mean like the London Fever Hospital, the Kensington Children's Hospital, the insert British town name Cancer Hospital. (laughs) Um, At the beginning of the century, most hospitals in England and Wales combined could accommodate mm, maybe an average of 3,000 patients. And 50 years later, they were up to 8,000.
1: Well, this was an interesting time because I I've played a game actually with Dr. Dr. Josh um, uh, called Timeline, and like a bazillion inventions were made during that time. Like you name it, it was in that era.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, you know, we had Louis Pasteur from my side. Mm Yeah, you know, eighteen sixty, eighteen sixty four. We had my favorite crazy person. Uh, Igna Sammelweis who taught everybody to wash their hands. Uh, Josh, I know we talked about John Snow.
2: Well, let's, let's not jump ahead of ourselves. We are going to revisit a few of our former cameos.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for Dr. Ward, this was like the resuscitation happened during this time, like CPR. Oh, that's right. Yeah and and Josh, we get to talk about if we talk about that we get to talk about blowing smoke again.
2: You guys, can we make <laughs> this a series? Can can I can can we come up with a fun little ditty of a theme and go into several different Victorian eras? Maybe. We'll find out. <laughs> let's let's cover a little bit especially after let's say 1815, the Apothecaries Act. Made it mandatory for any apprentice to have a half year's experience in an infirmary, hospital, or pharmacy. Uh, So we already talked about the founding of medical schools and medical education at Johns Hopkins in the US, but around the Vic, just pre Victorian, is when you began to see medical residencies and surgical residencies show up in Victorian London. Or in Victorian England. And all of these students became very important because with the Anatomy Act of 1832, all unclaimed bodies were sent to them for dissection.
0: (laughs) This times really, really well uh, with some of my favorite YouTubers and stuff talking about the history of... How we got bodies, specifically skeletons, into medical school, and yeah, there was a lot of body snatching going on.
2: But uh, birking, no, yeah. wait, resurrectionists, resurrectionists. Yeah, resurrectionists. <laughs> birking was how you killed them. Resurrectionists yeah. were the gentlemen who found the bodies for dissection. Can you explain to us what's birking. <laughs> well, two very famous gentlemen by the names of Burke and Hare. Uh, originally started out as grave robbers to obtain cadavers for dissection for medical school. However, as time went on, they realized that, well, they could just take drunks in off the street, smother them, and turn their bodies in as having been recently died and unclaimed. And they began to run a boarding house where they did just that. Uh, And then they were eventually arrested And killed, and one of them was made into a little leather purse in display in Scotland. And the other one was hanged and given for dissection to the very medical school he used to sell the bodies to. And his method of smothering all these people to death became so commonplace it was known as burking.
0: Okay, that's absolutely
2: awful. So. yeah. I usually save that for Halloween episodes, but we've well, covered that in the past.
0: We have. we have. And I guess we're taking the good with the bad here. The good is that you're starting to get codification of medical schools. You're getting principles of pharmacology and physiology being taught in a very unbiased and systematic way rather than... You know, just eminence based medicine where you just did an apprenticeship under XYZ person who called themselves doctor and therefore you got to call yourself doctor. So I love that part, but I I'm kinda sad that the answer to how to get those people supplies was smothering and great Was housing. to supplies them. <laughs> That's so awful. Oh my so god. Let's start oh, by talking.
2: So let's start by talking about physiology in the Victorian era. So it wasn't quite as bad as the four humors of the Roman era, but it also wasn't terribly accurate. They were getting from all those unclaimed bodies a much more clear understanding of anatomy, but for the most part The populace, and to a lesser extent, even the doctors, had only hazy knowledge of the location and role of most internal organs, uh, and a very strong spiritual belief in the soul, or the ghost in the machine, or some kind of vital force that flowed through your blood and nervous systems. So by that sense, it almost seems more like the humors. Um, There also was a very traditional idea of the body where women were simply smaller versions of men who were turned inside out with internal rather than external organs. Um, And children were simply smaller versions of men and women. So there was a lot of... (laughs) on the right path.
0: (laughs) But... (laughs) And, well, this is kind of a scary thing because not long after this, you know, because, you know, your body snatching and everything, and, you know, you turned into, okay, well, women's corpses and kids' corpses were harder to find, so they were actually more... Uh, valuable. Um, I- I'm glad that someone took the time to actually learn about this and say, Hey, we can't just like say that women are smaller men, <laughs> but at the same time, it's, Oh God, how d- how did they have to
2: learn that? Oh, well, they were smaller men who were outside in, you oh, know, inside out. Yeah, because yeah. their organs were on the inside right? rather than prominently displayed.
0: Yeah, just, just, that's all that you just take your you go,
2: <laughs> <Yep>. oh, dear. <laughs> okay. Uh, now the body was also defined as a closed system of energy and your physical, mental, um, and reproductive expenditures were all held to be in competitions. So this is where you got the idea that sexual excess or things like gout would lead to debility from rich foods, rich actions, you know, all that partying, or the idea that female or reproductive health was damaged by intellectual study. Because if women got too smart, that would build up all their mental energy and take away from other places. Uh, And this is why one of the most common prescriptions given in the Victorian era was rest. You know, not all that different from what we recommend today, but for vastly different reasons. That is a valid
1: prescription. I still tell people to rest.
2: Yeah, you they, you don't exactly. want their physical and mental energies to be out of balance. Well, I don't say that because then
1: you know it sounds crazy, but uh, but it's part of uh, I, we tell people that it's part of the R I C E rice mnemonic, right? Uh, rest, you know, ice and elevate. So I mean, I mean the rest actually does a lot of good.
2: Maybe not for the reasons they thought. They said, listen, you're getting too much of a buildup of one, not humor, that's barbaric, but your reproductive energy is building up too much, and you need to give it a a relaxation, lest it damage your physical or mental. So – in disease transmission was mostly there was an understanding of genetics because Gregor Mendel was earlier than Victoria's reign. They understood that things could be inherited, right. and they also understood that individual lifestyle changes, uh, which they called intemperance, meaning <laughs> yeah. drunks, sots. Uh, peasants i don't know what you know whatever your misfortune was in in addition to your climate location were likely to make you more likely to get a disease that's where the concept of miasma came from
0: yeah bad air or you know if you had something transmitted by smell the they weren't too far off there's definitely they were on the right path that things can be passed around through the air, coughing, sneezing, that kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, I think instead of blaming it on, um, you know, airborne pathogens, they thought it was literally the air itself. I mean, it's maybe it was a leftover from the Middle Ages and the the plagues that have been, you know, killing people for 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 time, you know, uh, from the
2: beginning of time. But they knew that it was something in the environment. And if you'd like to know more about the plague, well, just listen to last week's episode. (laughs) Um, So general causes were understood. Now, treatments, as you said, Ward, since they thought disease mostly was due to bad air, the next treatment, in addition to rest, was a change of air. Uh, You know, go to the coast for a few weeks. And while you're there, take a bunch of laxatives and get a little bleeding by a leech, you know, the full (laughs) Victorian spa. Oh God. Uh, Clear those impurities from the body. And once, once you're cleansed of your toxins, come back. Sounds totally ridiculous, right?
1: (laughs) No, no. It it made sense. You know, Victorian age uh, cities were places where there was high population density Um, Not a lot of hygiene. And I've learned from I think one of my historical talks at one of um, the one of the um, one of the cities where they they learned that shit face literally meant bars would literally um, toss out excrements. And if you were drunk and too drunk to notice it, that excrement landed on your face. So these Guard are the places you're getting those are the places you're getting away from. You go to the coast, away from all that density, away from all that pollution, yeah, you're gonna get better. Well,
0: possibly, right? Because they were trying to deal with what they could at the time. But if for instance you're dying from consumption at the time, then yeah, you might feel a little better for a bit. You might perk up. Um, but you're still eventually going to waste away and die. I do understand that
1: without your interface.
0: Well, <laughs> well, I understand a little bit that like you'd perk up for a bit. You, you know, there'd be a change of pace, and you know, it, it would be a different place, and the air would be a little bit better, and you might, you know, feel a little bit lighter on your feet for a little bit. But it was definitely not a a cure, so to speak. Um, Josh, and you were talking about, you know, getting the leeches on and everything and bleeding. So we were still kind of near the end of, um, four humors type of balancing type of thinking.
2: We were, but we've also talked in an old Christmas episode about how tiny Tim and his disease, which we delved into how that would have been cured by just going out and living on the coast away from the pollution away from those because Dickens was writing all his works during the Victorian era. And we do still now use leeches for different for the reasons. Car. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and we've we've spoken about this one before also that uh, we know right now that if you have pooling of blood that's actually tamponading the ability for arterial blood to get in um that often happens after you've had hand surgery for instance and the venous blood is pooling and actually closing down the arteries to feed your newly re-implanted hand then you need the leech to suck away the old pooled venous blood so that you can get fresh blood in there uh i still think that's pretty damn cool
2: For all that we are going to be mocking the Victorians, we have now found new uses for a lot of these older treatments. Uh, And to be fair to the Victorians, we still do, in a way, of,
1: um, well, leech bleeding. Well, in a way, plasma phoresis and plasma exchange is we take out blood and we take out some of the aspects that we don't want and put in aspects that we do want they're just missing the exchange part where we, they put back in the parts that you do want.
2: Yes. Nature evolved leeches, not dialysis machines, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> no. They were the first dialysis machines.
2: Um, but we can certainly talk about some of the other technology or ad- advancements that came about during the Victorian era. Um, how about the stethoscope invented in, well, technically invented in 1817. So again, began to predate Victorian era, but became much more widely associated with the doctors in that time. Uh, yeah. So. I
0: I remember this one because we did our episode on it where we talked about the doctor who actually, he, he put his head. <laughs> remember Josh mm-hmm. on the, the woman with the ample bosom. <laughs>
2: and, and it was a real problem to diagnose her. And he said, Madam, your bosom is obstructing my diagnosis.
0: <laughs> and he actually found out that if he had this little amplifying cup and he, he you know, put a, a a rubber hose on the end that could transmit the sound up to your ears, he actually heard the heartbeat and the lung sounds better than if he just, you know nuzzled
1: her. <laughs> different times, those were different times.
0: Oh no! I just, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and say thank you to that doctor. So that, you know, you get a little bit of modesty in the, uh, in the exam room when examining women. That's, that's very kind.
2: Louis Pasteur, or at least antiseptic surgical procedures based on Pasteur were developed by Joseph Lister, who also was around in the Victorian era, 1827 to 1912. And he would sterilize things using carbolic acid. So (laughs) that would have stung a little, but the aseptic procedures using this carbolic acid included sterilization of whole environments with successful outcomes such as Edward VIII's approach or Edward VII's appendicitis operation right before he was scheduled to be crowned would help pave the way for, you know, surgeons to become the heroes and uh, forefronts of clinics that they are in so many places.
0: We finally came around, you know, it was a little bit before the Victorian era, but we were coming around in the 1800s before the Victorian era to where surgeons and doctors were one and the same. And the old adage from the Hippocratic oath, which says, you know, I will, uh, I will never pick up a knife. Uh, even for those who labor under the stone, uh, which is referring to kidney stones, but leave that to my brothers the butchers and the barbers. And, This was a transition. So you all of a sudden you needed from a physician standpoint, from a doctor's point of view, I need to be able to clean things properly. That was aseptic technique and antiseptic technique. Uh, And then I need to be able to knock people out. And you had your first. Uh, experiments, you know, just like you said, Josh, with, you know, uh, uh, sterilizing and then anesthetizing as well.
1: They saw the drastic results and the, the fact that they were effective. Well, even even before the Victorian era, um, amputations on battlefields were were proven to save lives, right. So they were like, oh, maybe they're not just barbers. Maybe we'll ask him for more than a buzz cut yeah. and an amputation. <laughs> maybe they are our brethren in medicine.
2: Well, ether was discovered too, but that was over in uh, the U.S. If <laughs> And we've covered that in different ones. So we're focusing this time on you know Victorian England. Uh, and we also got the beginning of epidemiology with Jon Snow, as we've yeah. covered in several times so
0: winter winter is coming same name
2: <laughs> but much less disappointing and he knows lots of things
0: yeah <laughs> i i love that that's his name and i know uh george rr R. martin had to get a name from somewhere and putting together a really common first name with something that reminds you of ice is a pretty good name for the ruler of westeros so I'm not too surprised. But yeah, this guy's name was Jon Snow. He did epidemiology. He went around and found out the source of an outbreak by actually checking out water pumps. Well, let's, saying, let's not yeah.
2: bury the lead here. Oh, I mean, sorry, that's a sorry. Fun, it's a fun story and we can tell it. a brief. So, I mean, he he designed we talked about ether in the U.S. being discovered, but he designed the apparatus to safely administer ether to patients, and a mask to administer chloroform, which he personally gave to Queen Victoria when she gave birth to the last two of her nine children, Leopold and Beatrice. (laughs) Uh, So he was one of the first obstetric anesthetists. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so that was around 1847, a f- only a few years earlier, he had noted there was such an outbreak of, how do you say it again, Santosh? Love in the time of cholera? Oh, I thought I could get you to say cholera. I yeah.
0: <laughs> don't know cholera. why you call it that. It's cholera. Cholera was the, the, was the cholera. weird...
2: <laughs> cholera. Got it. <laughs> Um, so he was tracing an outbreak of cholera yeah and and noted that the only people who weren't getting sick were the local brewers Mm -hmm. you know because they only drank beer they weren't having any of this filthy water business and that (laughs) is how he discovered and traced an outbreak of disease back to a well
0: he went around and he was able to find out okay, well, these people are getting sick. These people are not getting sick. We have more cases closer to here. And along with uh, what I was talking before, that you know, germ theory was not only coming more and more into vogue, but the realization that germ theory was an important central principle of
2: well, how... Well, the principle itself hadn't been developed yet.
0: Well, oh, that's
2: fair. So the, ideas, the ideas were all... There, but it wasn't commonly accepted scientific knowledge yet,
0: yeah, I, I, I do think it's fair to say that I, I mean, there was a there was a step in germ theory that needed to come along, right? So there was already a good amount of understanding and knowledge that there is propagation of illness somehow through the air, through the water, and there's something about what is in there, you know, to, that, that'll move disease around, that it just doesn't stay static, um, or that it doesn't radiate uh, indiscriminately from person to person. But you're right, you're right. The Leavenhook coming along and actually checking out his microscope. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're still waiting for Lister and all these other guys to codify the idea that these little guys um, you know that you can see under the microscope the wee beasties are the ones that are actually causing this issue, and the the theory that would come after that that would say like oh these are the guys and you know this is the thing that we have to worry about that's causing
1: communicable disease uh, it wouldn't
0: come out for a while. You're right.
1: On the other what hand, else? it gave you practical practical advice. Hey, drink beer, not water. Hey, get away from the <laughs> you know poop filled cities. And that's how you got, that's
2: how you not got sick. Actually, Ward, it was a political controversy at the time because although officials did replace the pump handle, they responded only to the urgent threat posed to the population by this worry monger, Jon Snow, who was going around telling people that the well water was diseased. And afterward, they rejected his theory because to accept his proposal would have. Basically, confirmed the existence of fecal oral routes of disease transmission, and most of the public didn't want to think about that. Well, times have not changed. So it wasn't, (laughs) and he published that in, you know, 1855. It took another few years until one of the chief opponents of that idea was investigating a different outbreak at another city and was like, well, I'm going to do the same thing that I saw work before. And then Orders were issued around the country that unboiled water was not to be drunk. Um, So public health officials recognize the political struggles which reformers become entangled. Every year during the annual pump handle lecture in England, members of the John Snow Society remove and replace a pump handle on a well to symbolize the continuing challenges for advances in public health.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a fantastic
1: ritual. That's so, so cool. It's still pertinent to today. Hey, masks, no masks. Hey, closing, not closing. Politics and science
2: have always been in bed together. And, you know, even to this day. But right now, people don't want to use protection.
1: (laughs) Yeah, We'll get them a new
2: new pump handle. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... uh, most of the time, in terms of Victorian epidemiology, a lot of the morbidity were infectious. You know, tuberculosis was a hot topic back then. And a lot of respiratory causes predominated, mostly due to the pea soup, thick Victorian fog that had a lot of sulfur in it. Uh, there was so much kind of pollution both in pre-industrial London and certainly in an industrializing London that you could have fog that could literally kill you.
0: You've got this weird combination of like, okay, we have to worry about infectious disease and then we have to worry about, you know, the toxicity from
1: industrial waste, too. And, you know, that sulfur in the air, when it combined with atmospheric water, when it comes down as rain, it turns into sulfuric acid in, uh, in a weird chemical reaction that stuff was really bad
2: for you. Nowadays, although pea soup fog uh was seen in Victorian London, they have a very similar situation going on in Delhi, India. And it's a very and due to all the sulfur in it as you mentioned, you know I'm You know what Ward, you did a good job of explaining. It. I don't need to repeat for you. But it takes place in India. There you go.
1: I um, I remember it well when we were in uh Delhi and it literally looked like pea soup outside
2: at night, with the. And, uh, we, had, we ended up like you know every time we sneezed, something black would hit the ground. <laughs>
0: that's right. I I've got to say I'm kind of in the same vein though. I'm a little bit happy when, despite all the horribleness that's going on now with this pandemic. It is actually a really good thing that, you know, maybe we're staying at home a little bit because we are getting less just travel, um, you know, getting out of our homes and using fossil fuels and cars and buses and all this kind of a thing. And so the the air quality is actually cleaning up quite a bit uh, all over the
2: planet. Humans are the virus.
0: <laughs> yeah. Alright, let's not um, quote the Matrix in the middle of all this.
2: So overall, a lot of the Victorian era is notable more for its advancements in monitoring of disease than its curative treatments. Uh although those are a lot of fun to read about. So let's talk about drugs in the Victorian era. This is
1: something dear and uh, near to my heart, because the drugs used in the victorian era nowadays um are we just call them poisons i mean if you took any of those medications you probably need to call the poison control
0: the the principle behind a lot of what we do okay so antibiotics in general right they're poisons that are specific for microbes we hope chemotherapy before we got um focused biologics it's poison so the where we started from using things like arsenic and various like folate inhibitors and that kind of thing yeah they were they were poison yeah
1: even mercury is usually toxic but you know when used in the right amounts
2: was a great syphilis treatment
0: Yeah, and and that's the thing, is that they would poison the bacteria and the human.
2: So the Victorians took not just alcohol and opium, but cannabis, coca, mezcal. Oh, and they invented the hypodermic needle in the 1840s. That was right at the beginning of the Victorian era, so they could take morphine and heroin. (laughs) Uh, Morphine and heroin. (laughs) For all of that, more so than any other doctors, the pharmacy is what brought healthcare to the general population for the first time. So pharmacies, literal drug dealers began to proliferate, shockingly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this was the standardization using chemistry and biochemistry in order to examine how these tools actually treated the people that we wanted to treat and therefore kind of standardizing that care and then giving it or making it available as a tool to physicians. Well, forget
2: about the physicians. This was a significant change for society because this was, you know, the universal health healthcare of its time. It allowed the average person to access cures and remedies for illness that before, You would have had to get a traveling physician who might have come into town once, but largely was appointed to nobility. Now, you've got a local pharmacist on, you know, at most a couple neighborhoods over, and early Victorians can get their own personalized cures for illness. This is like, you know, having a Whole Foods suddenly appear in your neighborhood. Cutting out the middleman.
1: Well, I, that's, that's not a concept unknown to today. I practice in Southern California on the border. If you go south of the border, a lot of the medications that you need at pharmacies, you need a prescription here in the States. When If you cross the border, guess what? Antibiotics, guess what? Um, potent anti-inflammatories you do not need a prescription for.
0: <laughs> it's it's actually much more so the rule than it is the exception that you need a You don't need a prescription. Kind of what we think of as industrialized nations. That's where we think about, oh, you need to go to the doctor. You need to get a specific prescription. And then you need to bring that to your apothecary, to your pharmacist. And then they'll get it to you. That's a a weird concept in a lot of the rest of the world. And I still, from time to time... Um, I get a little bit of strange looks from occasional friends, visitors from outside of this country. Or what do you mean? I need to go see the doctor? No, I just let's just go to the pharmacy. Find parts of the United States like this. Uh, so when I was in Miami, for instance, you could go to the very, very Caribbean Hispanic part of town where if you didn't speak Spanish, you couldn't get any service. And if you went there, you would find you know la farmacia there, the the pharmacist who would just you know. Package some pills for you and give it to you if you told them what you needed. Parts of certain cities that you will find this here in Narcos, the
2: Miami. No, actually, was no that, it, it. It. It it I would get
0: antibiotics and stuff.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah I know. Or, Even in Chicago, selling hard. I had juice. patients who told me if you need prednisone, if you need amoxicillin, you can find it on the street for a price.
2: these pharmacists would have been very very competent uh, even by the standards of their time because they would have had to individually mix all these different ingredients so things you could expect to see in these old-timey pharmacies and there's a great documentary about them on youtube would have included balance scales weights uh, pill rolling device mortar and pestle and a huge book that looked like it belongs in hogwarts full of Hogwarts full of all the remedies and potions that (laughs) that that particular pharmacy could make. If you were to give me a bunch of moxicillin, I don't know how to compound it into
1: into pills or IVs or medications.
0: Yeah, this is a very, it's a niche specialty. And even in this era where we're codifying Scientific medicine, so evidence-based medicine, medical practices based on mathematical models and epidemiology, and you know placebos and placebo-controlled trials and that kind of a thing. You still needed the chemist, you needed the apothecary or the pharmacist to make up the medication. There were a few doctors who you know could cross discipline like that a little bit because you know they they had that idea that the, uh, you know, basis of medical, you know, theory and physiology came from chemistry. So you had to know this, but that wasn't a hundred percent true.
2: In fact, in the U S it's the respect for chemists quickly uh, began to decline when people with these skills would take their patent medicines on the road and sell literal snake oil pills But in Victorian England, a lot of Victorians were poor, and chemists were available for free, whereas doctors were not. So drugs were over the counter without a prescription. Now, we talked about all those fun drugs, right? Opium, heroin, cocaine, mescaline. But then you learn how they started to take them, and it gets a little bit less exciting. Opium pills, in true classist condition, were coated in varnish for the working class Silver for the rich and gold for the very rich. This includes the enemas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there also was a no cherry. <laughs> oh, we're not even. We're not even there yet. But opium pills were coded based on how much you could pay for them. Cherry pectoral was a mixture of alcohol and opium for children's cough that would now be deemed almost certainly a poison. Um. Well,
1: it would have worked. Um, On the other hand, it might have also killed a few children. We use that nowadays. Um, Maybe not the alcohol part, but but, um, opiates are a potent, potent cough uh, medication that works centrally to prevent coughs. However, it has a nasty habit of stopping children from breathing, so that's what we don't do (laughs) nowadays.
0: And and from an infection standpoint – um, you also do want to keep the cough reflex going, so that you don't have this terrible, what we call a pulmonary toilet, um, or the opposite of that is lack of a pulmonary toilet, where the saliva or, or you know the the secretions oh, from your yeah, mouth yes. and everything actually aspirate and go down your windpipe and into your lungs instead of coughing it up um, and swallowing your phlegm. So yeah,
2: one of the best things is every pharmacy would have its own little, uh, collection of what were called everlasting pills. They could be family heirlooms. And if that's making you think of Wonka's everlasting gobstoppers, well, buckle up folks, because the everlasting pill itself was very small and made of a metal mm, called antimony. (laughs)
0: Sure, like the toxic metal antimony, sure.
2: Yep. Uh, And swallowing this pill, which would be sold to you over the counter without a prescription by your local pharmacist, would induce severe vomiting and diarrhea, thus giving the body a healthy cleanse. Um, But wait, there's more. You remember the everlasting part? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, once you had that healthy cleanse... You would sift through your night soil, your excrement, and retrieve the pill, which was marketed to be reusable. Uh, You give it a brief wash, put it back on the shelf, and then the next person who got sick and needed a cleanse could gulp it down as they wished. And some of these would go through many, many people in the family and could have been passed down from generations. This pill was good enough for your grandpa and is good enough for you. How environmentally friendly (laughs) of that Wow, you,
0: you could have like uh like it could be part of your inheritance.
1: We we laugh at them now, but not that many years ago, um we still used um syrup of ipecac. Yeah, to uh, induce vomiting.
0: until very recently to to induce
1: vomiting, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe not the same one that your grandmother shot out, but <laughs>
2: I feel like that's really where the objection comes from. Not that they look at these people giving folks stuff to vomit. Yes, how old-fashioned. But also, picking that same thing they used out of their own feces. Uh,
1: My brother got the house, and I got the everlasting
2: pill. Thanks, Grandma. (laughs) And would that mean your grandma liked or hated you?
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: This is such a weird, I mean, okay, yeah, there were a lot of weird practices, right? You know, we talk about, uh, was made, you know, because we had those death masks and, you know, people thought that Annie, who was pulled out of the Seine River, looked so beautiful that he permanently cast it and that turned into the doll that we use for resuscitation. And then we've got, um, yes, oh, Josh. that
2: was, that was France and that Denmark, was France, France sorry, and sorry. Denmark respectively.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And then in England, I guess we had. Um, oh, you, people like to take like they like to keep their dead, but then you know take pictures with them. I
2: think. So you're about mm, hundred years too early. All of that was oh, France. No, in the 17th okay, gosh.
0: Gotcha. <laughs> okay, so I I'm a little off in terms of what the um the the weird. Uh, Think of it this way. CPR
2: was discovered during the golden age of piracy, which makes sense because you don't want a lot of pirates drowning. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fun little mental mnemonic.
0: That's a good way to think about it. But uh, the, the fact that we have all of these, you know, this kind of row of rather strange Things and right in the middle of it is inheriting my mother's opium. So no,
2: inheriting my mother's antimony enema,
0: <laughs> antimony enema. Sorry, the everlasting Look, I, antimony enema.
1: <laughs> when looked
2: back in
1: in in history, usually history is not kind to old technology and old sciences. That that's just the way it is. I I looked up a uh, I looked up a not that old medical uh, text on. Prostatitis, and we used to milk people's prostates, and that was not in the Victorian era. That was like in the 1960s. Uh, (laughs) All
2: right, well well, let's let's talk then about. So we know technology becomes outdated, but let's let's talk about Lister a little bit more. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, I still use Listerine. Not for the same reason he used it. for. <laughs>
2: I was going to say before before you so proudly cop to that ward. Let's. You might want to wait until you hear I use a little more. A day. Down. Use, I, I
1: use it twice a day, Doctor Josh.
2: Listerine. So all right, doubling down. So the first antiseptic that Lister used, we mentioned, is carbolic acid, which comes from tar, uh, mm. and he basically saw. The reason he chose that one is that he read in the newspaper one day that the acid was being used in Carlisle, England, to kill the smell of sewage in that area. And he's like, hmm, well, if this is powerful enough to kill off the smell of sewage, it just might kill off the smell of wounds. He didn't like diabetic feet either. That was his wound care. Smear some tar on it. If it's good enough for sewage, good enough for you. So then he decides, well... This is pretty corrosive, so before I just start dumping it everywhere and causing more problems, probably need to sterilize the area around it. Uh, and he did it with something that he called, and I love this, the donkey engine.
0: The, uh, the donkey engine. Uh, sorry, donkey engine.
2: Yeah, because it was two big bellows like for a forge on a tripod and you would press on it and the carbolic acid would spray into the air. He invented the earliest little Lysol disinfectant.
1: Oh, boy. And, hey, Dr. Josh, you guys ever use... I, we use a different version of that in the ER nowadays. We put, uh, we put coffee grounds on the ground and then use fans around it to get rid of all that diabetic foot smell.
2: Yep. So... He didn't realize that the air itself didn't need to be sterilized before smearing carbolic acid on the wound. So we don't really hear about the donkey engine that much. But boy, oh boy, I managed to dig it up, and
0: <laughs> I—it's well, such a f- donkey engine of all things.
2: It would sound like a donkey. It would be like the eh, like the sound of the bellows. And then eat the spray all, of the carbolic all, yeah. acid, and I imagine that you get hit with a spray of carbolic acid anywhere, and it's going to feel like a kick from a donkey. <laughs>
0: smells wonderful. I, Why not? <laughs> I love this. I I really do. I think it's really really awesome that we're we're on the advent right here of evidence based medicine, but we're bringing together disciplines like physics and chemistry into biology, which before this time was really, you know, in terms of human biology, a a descriptive science. And uh, it's, it's really cool that we're making these observations, but we're writing them down now, we're compiling them. And we're able to find out these things that like, okay, well, I'm cleaning up the air. What are you cleaning up in the air? I'm not exactly sure, but I I know that if I do this properly, it smells better and my patients
1: don't die. Or they do, but they smell better.
2: (laughs) Now, a lot of the surgeons at the time got of the idea to work off Lister's work so they started experimenting with different antiseptics because they didn't want their hands terribly corroded but (laughs) this carbolic acid was such a popular thing for a while that you could go in and buy kits again from your local pharmacy and you could go around with these little kits of carbolic acid to your neighbors and remove their hemorrhoids you know for fun
0: And you know, for the sake of the patient,
2: right? But they specifically said, you know, go around and help your neighbors. I, I guess medical care was a lot more concentrated in the community then.
1: I see. Okay, it doesn't seem that strange to me. Okay, the hemorrhoids were the neighbors. That's a little bit too close. I, I'm not that close with my neighbors. But <laughs> um, but nowadays we still use um, we still use liquid nitrogen to remove warts, caustic materials to remove warts, and skin lesions.
2: And finally, in terms of your Listerine, before we get to the next and final, twice a day,
1: Josh. Twice a day, use it twice a day. <laughs> sure. Well, so, I, see, so I thought you originally would go for
0: Listeria monocytogenes, where the bacteria was named after this eminent, you know, godfather of of you know germ theory and um, infectious no, diseases. No, right? no,
2: I'm going to tell go to you that wash, huh? Listerine was used and developed and used to cure gonorrhea, and then eventually turned into mouthwash.
1: Uh Three (laughs) times a (laughs) day, (laughs)
2: Josh. Well, interestingly enough, a study was done uh, that was published in 2017 in JAMA to see whether or not Listerine had any effect on gonorrhea. Uh, Because, remember, germ theory was only new, newly developed or being developed during the era. They tested it, and it turns out that on an in vitro study and a small randomized trial of men, uh, Neisseria gonorrhea was, in fact, inhibited in the mouth by Listerine. Now, it wasn't enough to to full-on kill or prevent infections, certainly in the genitals. You can't just splash that everywhere like Windex, but... You're supposed to do that for 30 seconds. Good luck with that. <laughs> but rinsing for 30 seconds did kill off statistically significant amounts of that bacteria in the mouth. I thought that was a really interesting study. Apparently, yeah, it does help. Every little bit it. It helps. Now, one of the things that the Victorians spawned a more modern trend, perhaps unwittingly, have either of you heard of the Victorian tapeworm diet, diet are there influencers life. back even in the Victorian
1: era, is this for weight loss? I, I was th-
2: to fit into some of the fashions of the day. Some Victorians would swallow tapeworms. The idea was a Victorian woman would take a pill containing a tapeworm egg once it hatched, that would grow inside the host, and they eat part of whatever you eat, which in theory enables the diet the dieter. To lose weight and eat without worrying about the calories, Ward. You want to tell us why that's a bad idea? Well, along
1: with with calories, you also lose nutrients, and um, sometimes tapeworms can cause bowel obstructions. And oh, also, you have a parasite living living inside you. <laughs>
0: I'll I'll add in here if it was. It depends on the type of tapeworm. Also, if you had dwarf fish tapeworm or fish dwarf tapeworm, I can never remember what it is, diphyllobothrium latum, you could get B12 deficiency and get horrible, horrible pernicious anemia, which would eventually result in you having like terrible neurological disease.
2: But luckily, when the desired weight was achieved, tapeworm dieters could simply take one of their everlasting pills. <laughs> Yeah, which ant- to be it, fair would absolutely clear a tapeworm out.
0: Oh no no yeah, antimony yeah, it, it antimony poisons cells. It doesn't matter if it's a tapeworm cell, if it's your cells, if it's a bacterial cell, you will get burned.
2: <laughs> so there are rumors of people who still try and do this today. Don't the last one that we'll talk about comes in closer to the end of the Victorian era. Have either of you ever heard of Lamplighter's disease?
0: You're you're as in you're lighting lamps, like this is a disease if you light too many lamps, like it's it's an occupational hazard.
2: Yeah. Lamplighter's disease, the Mary Poppins thing, the one that uh what does face Um the Little um, Lie would have had.
1: The <laughs> I've created that in person, but We don't call it lamplighter's disease because we don't have lamplighters anymore.
2: What do you call it, Mr. Fancy Pants medical doctor? Carbon monoxide poisoning. (laughs) I mean, I guess, but that sounds so much less romantic. How would a lamplighter have presented with carbon monoxide poisoning?
1: Well, carbon monoxide poisoning, like the scourges of old, is a great imitator. It can cause all sorts of symptoms, such as headache. Well, carbon monoxide by the way, is a toxic gas that binds to your hemoglobin, so it can't carry oxygen. So it poisons every system you have, your gastrointestinal system, your nervous system, primarily your nervous system. Patients generally come in with very nondescript symptoms like, oh, I have a headache. I just, I don't feel right. I have some nausea, vomiting. In later stages, people don't act like themselves. And of course, if you, if In later, later, late stages,
2: comatose. So these lamplighters would start off as a lot of small boys, but later on, this became a whole part of society, but they would set out just before dusk, dressed in hat and coat with, you know, cheery whistle or song, like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, uh, and let the public know, to let the public know they were in the vicinity, and then they would come back at dawn to extinguish the light, you know being careful not to get blown off their ladders from a buildup of gas in the bowls. They ended up becoming night watchmen. So there were lamplighter families where this job was passed from father to son, they had their own traditions, went to specific bars, and even had marriages between each other. And there's still about, I think, something like a 1000 or two gaslights operating in London, even today. So I think that's that's where I'll let you guys off the hook for now. And uh, we'll bring a close to this episode.
1: I think I would have had fun as a Victorian doctor.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. It would have been so much fun. A lot of bloodletting. But,
1: you know, it's a messy job. Somebody's got to do it.
0: Well, I mean, the the craziest thing about this, honestly, is that you you didn't have a ton of data. And stuff. I I know there's diseases right now where we're lacking data and we're still discovering a lot of stuff. But damn, if you could get away with almost anything, and that's a kind of awesome but super scary thing all at the same time.
2: Very similar situation to today where we're trying to figure out stuff as we go, making some of it up as we go along, studying to see what works, and will likely be lapped at by future generations for not picking out the obvious treatment cure or solution right in front of us and like i said dr josh (laughs) listerine three times a day
0: i uh i i don't
1: endorse this keep you healthy (laughs) And take talking about taking care of plaques of course
2: of course plaques and halitosis
1: yes
2: so so that's it for this week As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, as well as links to our Patreon and any of the sources we used researching this episode, other than my obsessive desire to read everything (laughs) about it. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Drs. Ward, Santosh, and our friends. And until next time, as always, until this pandemic is over, stay home, stay safe, Bye, and wash everybody. your hands.